Thank you musicians for giving of your time and talents this morning. I'm so glad that you were able to do that song. I remember listening to the choir, practicing, getting ready for Easter, and then everything changed, and that we were able to hear it this morning. Thank you for that gift. I want to do a couple shout outs before I begin this morning to people. First of all, birthdays. Uh, Abby Weiss is celebrating a birthday today. So Abby, we celebrate with you even though you're not with us. Glad that you could enjoy a birthday together with your family and we miss you. Tomorrow we have a couple people celebrating birthdays. We have Eric Nelson and we have Joe Summers. So happy birthday uh, to both of you and we hope that you have a wonderful day celebrating your birthday. I also want to do a shout out to people who are serving on the front lines. Um, and a couple people came immediately to my mind. I know I'm missing some people, and there's more than this, but a couple people. One is Joe Sue, who is working at Adventist Hospital and putting in a lot of hours there. And Joe, we appreciate you. The second person that comes to my mind is Justin Berry, who is working in law enforcement here in Clackamas County. And Justin, we appreciate your service and the fact that you're out there um, making sure everything is safe for us. Uh, thanks a lot for that. Today, my sermon's entitled, Loving the Church. And the passage that we're going to be looking at is Acts chapter 20, verses 1 to 16. So you can go ahead and turn there to get ready. Um, but before, as we're going there, I want to ask you a question. One is this, what makes a good pastor? There's a broad question, right? So here's probably some of the things that you're thinking, and I'll just list out some things. A charismatic personality, that's important. A skilled speaker, someone who can communicate well. Someone who's bold in proclaiming God's truth. Someone who's godly, someone who's a godly example. Someone who's able to lead people. Someone that's likable. Someone that has wise oversight of ministry. Someone that's a visionary, that has a vision for what God wants to do for the church in the future, reaching forward. And as important as all these qualities are, the reality is there's one quality that's most important behind all of these, and it is love. The quality of loving God, number one, loving God's word, and also loving God's people, the church. 1 Thessalonians 2, verses 7 to 8, I think Paul summarizes his heart of love for his people. And here's what 1 Thessalonians 2 says. It says, instead, we were like young children among you. He's speaking about his relationship to the church there at Thessalonica. Just as a nursing mother cares for her children, so we cared for you. Because we loved you so much, we were delighted to share with you not only the gospel of God, but our lives as well. Paul says, we loved you, we care for you so much, it was like we were just giving our lives for you. And that's the kind of love that Paul is gonna show in this passage that we're gonna read today. The reality is in Acts chapter 20, there's no doctrinal or practical exhortations given here, only Paul's life, only Paul's example. Love being lived out in action. And if you think about it, that's really the way love is lived out, isn't it? We can say we love somebody, we can command love, but the reality of it is we need to live love. It needs to be fleshed out. So in this passage, we're going to see Paul's love for the church 
in, th- in four areas. His encouragement, his giving, his persistence, and his availability. Those four characteristics of his love for his people. So let's start with the first one, encouragement. Verses 1 and 2 of Acts 20. Here's what it says. When the uproar had ended, Paul sent for the disciples and after encouraging them, said goodbye and he set out for Macedonia. He traveled through that area speaking many words of encouragement to the people and finally he arrived in Greece where he stayed three months. So we see it talks about in that passage the uproar had ended. What's that all about? Well, that was last week in the town of Ephesus there. Paul had come in and he had spoke the gospel and Demetrius the silversmith had stirred up the people of Ephesus and he accused Paul of speaking against Artemis and the temple there in Ephesus and so people got pretty riled up but Paul was protected and it says there that we read last week that the disciples protected Paul they kept him out of the theater where all this uproar was happening he was also protected by the officials and by a city clerk And so now he has the opportunity, now that the uproar is over, instead of looking out for his safety, he wants to reach out and encourage the people of Ephesus and the people in Macedonia. You see, Paul couldn't leave Ephesus and the area around Macedonia until he was sure that they were well-grounded in their faith and that they had an adequate knowledge of who Jesus Christ was. So verses 1 and 2 speak of this word encouragement, para Kaleo is the word. It's paraclete. It's a word where Jesus said, I will send to you a comforter, a paraclete, to be with you and encourage you, to comfort you. And that's the kind of word that we're talking about here, exhorting, comforting, encouraging, admonishing. Unfortunately, the idea of encouraging or exhorting from the word in some churches no longer happens. Churches are choosing more and more entertainment over exhortation. What we're seeing is market-focused and entertainment-driven churches rather than Christ-focused and gospel-driven churches. What we need more than ever is exhortation, encouragement from God's word in the times that we're living in. That's the most important thing. In the book of Ephesians, Paul speaks to this issue. So in Ephesians 4, verses 11 to 14, here's what Paul says to the church at Ephesus. So Christ himself gave the apostles, the prophets, the evangelists, the pastors, and teachers to equip his people for works of service so that the body of Christ may be built up until we all reach unity in the faith and in the knowledge of the Son of God and become mature, attaining to the whole measure of the fullness of Christ. Then we will no longer be infants, tossed back and forth by the waves, blown here and there by every wind of teaching, and by the cunning and craftiness of people in their deceitful scheming. Paul says that Christ gave the church gifted people, and he mentions apostles, prophets, evangelists, pastors, and teachers, the leaders of churches, the ones that started the churches in the book of Acts, Their goal and their purpose was to equip. Equip God's people to do two things. Number one, for works of service. And number two, that they may be built up in their faith. Now, if they're not equipped, what does equip mean? Equip means simply to train. Equip means to give people the tools that they need to do the ministry that God has gifted them to do. And that's 
what we are to do as leaders of the church. But what happens if they're not equipped? Well, verses 13 and 14 speak about that. Number one, there's gonna be a lack of unity. People are going to be using their gifts for themselves, not for other people. There's gonna be an imperfect knowledge of who Jesus Christ is. And lastly, there's gonna be a lack of spiritual maturity. It's like they're gonna be infants. It talks about that in verse 14 that are just kind of tossed back and forth, blown around by every wind of doctrine. So it's so important that people are encouraged, that they're built up, that they're taught God's word. Paul's legacy is to ensure that he leaves behind not a monument of himself, but those who, Christians who are a monument to God in their faithfulness to him. It's not about Paul, it's about building up believers to be living monuments of God in their faithfulness to him. So we see Paul was encouraging, he wanted to encourage the church, but he also wants to give. Verses one to two, it says that Paul set out for Macedonia. Now there's a map that we'll be referring to here with a verse in front of it. Um, And you can see where Paul is in Ephesus and his goal is to get up to Macedonia and that is in the upper left-hand corner of the map, you see that. His goal is to go from Ephesus up there to Macedonia. Now back in chapter 19, and I didn't read these verses last week, but I want to refer back to them. And in your Bibles, if you want to turn just one page back to Acts chapter 19, here's what it says. It says, after all this had happened, Paul decided to go to Jerusalem, passing through Macedonia and Achaia. After I have been there, he said, I must visit Rome also. He sent two of his helpers, Timothy and Erastus, to Macedonia while he stayed in the province of Asia a little bit longer. Paul had this desire to get to Jerusalem. Now, but it says he headed in the opposite direction up into Macedonia. Why did Paul want to go to Jerusalem? Why did he stay in Macedonia if he wanted to get to Jerusalem so bad? Well, first of all, Paul wanted to strengthen the churches up there in Macedonia. He had visited these churches. He had started some of these churches on his second missionary journey. Now he's on his third journey, and he wants to visit and reestablish them. But there's a love offering that he had that he wanted to collect from the people in Macedonia to take to the fellow believers down there in Jerusalem. Why was this collection of money so important to Paul? He talks about it in three places in the New Testament. 1 Corinthians, 2 Corinthians, the book of Romans. So it's on his mind, it's mentioned a lot. Why was it so important to him? Well, first of all, his love and concern for his brothers down in Jerusalem. They were going through some persecution, there was some famine that was happening in that time. So Paul wanted to make sure their needs were met, that they were taken care of. So he encouraged the Greek believers up in Macedonia and Achaia and in Asia to collect money to be taken down there to Jerusalem to help them. But secondly, there was a desire in Paul's heart to unify those that were Gentile with those that were Jew. And we see that in Romans chapter 15, verses 25 to 27. This is what he tells the church in Rome about this love offering. He says this. He says, Now, however, I am on my way to Jerusalem in the service of the Lord's people there, 
For Macedonia and Achaia, they were pleased to make a contribution for the poor among the Lord's people in Jerusalem. They were pleased to do it. I love this. Paul was saying, you know what, they just love doing this. They love giving money to their brothers in Jerusalem. Did they really? We don't know. But Paul says they did. They they were pleased to do this, and indeed they owe it to them. For if the Gentiles have shared in the Jews' spiritual blessings, they owe it to the Jews to share with them their material blessings. Paul wanted to unify these two fractions in the church, those that were Gentile, those that were Jewish. He saw the Jews in Jerusalem as a mother church, and they birthed these Gentile churches. And so now it's time for the Gentiles to give back. And in doing so, there's gonna be this unity that's brought about by this giving. What greater way to express your love for someone than to reach out and give? Think about in this time of the coronavirus and being separate from each other, what better way to just simply reach out in kindness and giving and how that draws us together. It's a beautiful thing. There's examples that I've heard about and seen of people here at church reaching out to others that are needy. Maybe it's some groceries. Maybe it's a prescription. Maybe it's just a phone call. Maybe it's a, hey, a shout out on Facebook or social media, but different ways that we can be giving and reaching out and showing love to other people. So Paul, he was encouraging, he was giving, but we also see Paul's persistence in verses three to six. This is what it says. It says, he had stayed, he had arrived in Greece, he stayed there three months because some Jews had plotted against him just as he was about to sail for Syria, he decided to go back through Macedonia. He was accompanied by Sopater, son of Pyrrhus, from Berea, Aristarchus and Secundus from Thessalonica, Gaius from Derb, Timothy also, and Tychicus and Trophimus from the province of Asia. These men went on ahead and waited for us at Troas, but we sailed from Philippi after the festival of unleavened bread, and five days later joined the others at Troas, where we stayed seven days. It mentions in verse 3 that there was a plot by the Jews to harm Paul. We don't know what the plot was. It isn't specified here. Possibly it was a plot to attack him while he was on a ship going from Macedonia down to Jerusalem, returning. Maybe there was a plot to attack him and a lot of the other pilgrims that would have been on that ship going from there to Jerusalem for the time of Passover or the Feast of Pentecost that are mentioned in this passage. We don't know, but this plot is going to deprive Paul of a couple things. One, he's going to have to detour. It says instead of going by sea from Macedonia south and east to Jerusalem, he had to go by foot up north into parts of Macedonia. It changed his course entirely. He went on a major detour. But I also think there's a delay that's going on here. Instead of getting to Jerusalem, very possibly for the festival of the Passover, he got delayed. And so now, instead of making it for Passover, which he isn't going to make, he's looking ahead to Pentecost, 50 days later. And that's going to be his goal now, is to get there by this feast of Pentecost rather than Passover. So detouring and delaying. And I thought about this in terms of how we are today. Detour 
delay. I, I can't think of any two words that better describes our situation right now. Everything we want to do, we're either detoured and forced to go somewhere else or not go at all, or we want to do it and we just were delayed and we have to wait and wait. And I thought about that the other day. We, th- we think in terms of detour delay, but the reality is it's all God's plan. God isn't detoured. God isn't delayed. So what is going on now in our lives is specifically part of God's plan. For example, I was thinking about this, how live stream services, a lot of churches are doing these. And so people are able to go online and watch these services all over the city of Portland, all over the United States, maybe all over the world during this time. The reality is a lot of those people maybe would never come to a church, would never come on a Sunday morning and sit in these pews and listen to someone give a sermon, but they're sitting at home, maybe bored even, and they're able now to access God's preaching, the preaching of God's word, going out live stream. What an incredible opportunity. I've actually heard people say to me, people that aren't a part of my church, I listened to you last week. I listened to your sermon live stream. So this is an opportunity. It's not a detour or delay, but it's an opportunity that can be used for the, for the kingdom of God. Now in verses four, Paul mentions his partners. He mentions seven of these fellow workers that are part of his ministry. They're gonna be traveling with him to Jerusalem with this free will offering, with this love offering. He mentions Sopater in Berea. He mentions Aristarchus and Secundus from the church in Thessalonica. He mentions Gaius from the church in Derby. He mentions Timothy from Lystra. He mentions Tychicus and Trophimus from the church of Ephesus. And then in verse five and six, although the name is not mentioned there, Luke joins Paul also. In verse five and six, it, start, it says us and we. Luke, the author of the book of Acts, has now rejoined Paul. We lost, last saw Luke at the end of chapter 16 in Philippi, where Paul and Silas had left him behind and moved on And he was left in Philippi at the end of chapter 16. Now he rejoins Paul and this list of seven co-workers who are going to go with Paul. Now, why the co-workers? Three reasons. Number one, Paul wanted representatives from each of the churches that were taking up this offering. He wanted people to go with the offering to Jerusalem and meet the saints there in Jerusalem. So these are representatives from the different churches that Paul had established. But I think there's two other reasons that they travel with him. Number two would be safety. As Paul travels with a large sum of money, you can imagine it would be a dangerous thing. So now you've got this group of people traveling together. It would be nine or more people traveling together. So there's safety in travel. But a third reason that I think is there that isn't mentioned is financial integrity. If it was just Paul who was collecting all this money from all these different churches and carrying it with him, there would have been an opportunity to question his integrity in regards to this offering. So Paul says, I want none of that. I want a group of people with me as I travel to make sure that I am accountable, that I 
am handling this money and not pilfering off and taking some for myself. So these men would have been his accountability partners as he traveled from up north down to Jerusalem. Now I want to point out two of the names. These names, some of them reappear in Scripture, some of them we really don't know much about. But one of the commentaries pointed out Aristarchus and Secundus from the church in Thessalonica. And I thought this was really interesting. Aristarchus, the name Aristarchus is connected with aristocracy. That's what the name actually means. From the ruling class, from a wealthy family, this person was most likely a wealthy person. Don't know much about this person. And then the other person, Secundus. The name means second. It's a common name for a slave in those days. Slaves often were not even called by their proper, their true names. The first ranking slave was often referred to as primus, the primary, number one. The secondary slave was often referred to as secundus. So here in the same church, we have someone, aristocracy, from a wealthy family, wealthy and high class, and we have someone being a slave. And I thought, how appropriate that is for the body of Christ. We have amongst us those that are a little better off and those that aren't, that are maybe struggling financially. That is the body of Christ, isn't it? And I see even in that as Christians, aristocracy, we are children of the king. So we have, because of our relationship with Christ, we have aristocracy in us. But also at the same time as Christians, we know that we are servants, we are slaves to Jesus Christ. We are second to him. So there's this beautiful picture, Aristarchus and Secundus, in just this list of representatives that would be traveling with Paul. Now Paul had been delayed by this plot. He had to travel by foot several miles, several days were lost, but we see in Paul this persistence, his desire, he has to get to Jerusalem no matter what. It's driving him. Just like Jesus had to get to Jerusalem on that day, on Palm Sunday, and his triumphal entry, he was driven to get there. Paul was driven to get to Jerusalem. We're gonna refer back to that a little bit later. He's encouraging, he's giving, he's persistent, but he's available. Verses seven to 16 gives us the rest of the story here at Troas. It says, on the first day of the week, we came together to break bread. Paul spoke to the people, and because he intended to leave the next day, he kept on talking until midnight. There were many lamps in the upstairs room where we were meeting. Seated in a window was a young man named Eutychus who was sinking into a deep sleep as Paul talked on and on. Do you get the picture? (laughs) When he was sound asleep, he fell to the ground from the third story, and he was picked up dead. Paul went down, threw himself on the young man, and put his arms around him. Don't be alarmed, he said. He's alive. Then he went upstairs again and broke bread and ate. After talking until daylight, he left. The people took the young man home alive and they were greatly comforted. We went on ahead to the ship and sailed from Assos from where we went going to take Paul aboard. He had made this arrangement 
because he was going there on foot. When he met us at Asos, we took him aboard and went on to Mytilene. The next day we set sail from there and arrived off Chios. The day after that, we crossed over to Samos, and on the following day, we arrived at Miletus. Paul had decided to sail past Ephesus to avoid spending time in the province of Asia, for he was in a hurry to reach Jerusalem, if possible, by the day of Pentecost. We see Paul's availability. In verse 7, it mentions a worship service there in Troas. And it mentions three things about this worship service. Number one, they gathered on a Sunday. That's the first thing mentioned. This is the first recorded description of a Christian worship service in the book of Acts. This is the first mention in the book of Acts of the regular practice of meeting on Sundays rather than on Saturdays, the Sabbath, the Old Testament Sabbath. We see in the book of Acts this transition of the people of God moving from Saturday worshipers to Sunday worshipers. As Christians in the New Testament, we were not commanded to keep the seventh day, Sabbath. The principle stays the same, the idea of rest. The Sabbath rest is a principle that abides, that continues. However, the practice of how that's done has changed over time from Saturday being recognized to now it's Sunday. The Jerusalem Council in Acts 15 did not impose Saturday Sabbath on the Gentiles. All they said was you need to, there are some dietary restrictions put on the Gentiles and you need to avoid immorality in your lives. That's what is gonna be important for you as Gentiles to do moving forward. And we see this transition in the book of Acts and in the writings of the early church fathers that the church began this regular practice of meeting on Sundays. I'd like to read a couple of comments made from the early church fathers. Early in the second century, Ignatius wrote, let every friend of Christ keep the Lord's Day as a festival, the resurrection day, the queen and chief of all the days. Justin Martyr described how Christians of his day worship. On the day called Sunday, All who live in cities or in the country gathered together to one place, and the memoirs of the apostles or the writings of the prophets are read as long as time permits. Sunday is the day on which we all hold our common assembly because Jesus Christ, our Savior, on the same day rose from the dead. Isn't that beautiful? It's the Lord's day. It's a resurrection day. That's when we're going to choose to worship. Tertullian, who lived in the late second early third centuries referred to Christians as those to whom Sabbaths are strange. Things had changed. Sunday, the Lord's Day, the Resurrection Day, the new creation in Christ is the focus of worship. We also see that they broke bread. In the early church, there was this idea of this agape love feast, this common meal that they would practice when they met together in homes. It changed as time went on to communion, the Eucharist, what we are going to participate in today. This idea of breaking bread as Jesus had instructed them to do, the cup and the bread. And then you have Paul speaking, someone preaching or someone sharing. That was, those are common elements of the Christian worship service. Now, 
Things are a little different there. Paul spoke from evening, dinner, a little bit maybe after dinner time, to midnight. It's about a six-hour period of time where Paul spoke. Now, the word there for speaking is not sermon as in one way. It's the word is dialogued, back and forth, very possibly question and answer. So it wasn't just a person standing for six hours and delivering a sermon. It was very possibly question and answer time. Uh, I know that Tim Keller in his church in Brooklyn, in, in New York City, after he preaches on any given Sunday, he stays afterwards and just fields questions from the audience, from people. And I always thought that was a great way to really communicate God's word and God's truth. So that's really what's going on. Paul realized he might never see these people again, so he is making himself available right up until he's ready to leave. Now, Paul's getting ready to leave the next morning. So you would think, well, hey, guys, i got to cut this short so I can get home, get some rest for the long trip ahead. But what we see with Paul is he's not only going to go to midnight, he's going to go until the crack of dawn, first thing in the morning as the story goes on. So this is Paul being available to his people. Now, in the middle of his sermon, or in this dialogue, something happens that kind of catches Paul's attention. And there's this young man, Eutychus, who, and it tells in verse 8 that there's these lamps burning in the upper room. Now, you can picture this idea with these lamps. There's fumes that's probably getting warm. It's, you've just eaten dinner. Paul is talking. He continues to talk on and on, right? The struggle. Eutychus, his name actually means someone who is lucky or fortunate. Isn't that kind of ironic in this story? Uh, he was a young lad, somewhere anywhere between 8 to 14 years old. That's kind of the word that's used there. And it says he's sinking into this deep sleep. There's this idea that he's fighting it, he's fighting it, he's fighting it, and then he can't win. And sleep overcomes him. Now the unfortunate thing is where he was at when he fell asleep. He wasn't in a pew, comfortably sitting. He was sitting on a windowsill three stories up. And he falls asleep, and he falls three stories to his death. Now that's a very unfortunate situation. Now, and I read this story, and for me it's kind of encouraging that Paul, people fell asleep even when Paul preached. Okay, so... When I look out on Sunday morning and I see people nodding, I don't get upset. I just say, you know what? They fell asleep when Paul preached. So why should I be upset by that? But what I find interesting, a couple things about this miracle. It's Luke, the physician, declares him dead. Okay, It's not mostly dead. We saw that earlier when, when Paul was stoned at Lystra. He was carried out of the city Assuming he was dead, not really. He kind of revived and went back into the city. But Luke says, he's dead. As a physician, you can trust him. And Paul falls on this young man. It would have been very similar to the miracles in the Old Testament of Elijah and Elisha when they brought a young lad back to life in their, in their lives. They fell on that young lad and they revived them back to life. And then... He's alive, and it says in verse 12, it brought great comfort to the people. Parakaleo, it's the same word as we saw back in verse one and two. Parakaleo, comfort comes because they saw someone come back to life 
from the dead. Isn't that true of Resurrection Sunday, next Sunday? Because of the resurrection of Christ, we, we receive great comfort. We are greatly encouraged. But what I, I want to point out here is the secondary importance of the miracle. It's almost odd. Here's Paul. He's preaching along. It's midnight. Then Eutychus falls out the window to his death. Paul stops, raises him back to life. Then he goes right back to preaching until dawn, the morning, right? It's almost like Paul's preaching along and he sees Eutychus fall out the window and he goes, oh, you know, interruption. Goes out, brings him back to life, and then goes right back to preaching again. It's very interesting to me, and I think what it's saying is this. I think oftentimes people think the miracle is the main thing, and it is huge. It's, it's, it's important, and it's a manifestation of God's power, and it's God's verification that what Paul is saying is true. We've seen this throughout the book of Acts, but the miracle isn't the main thing. The teaching of God's word is the main thing, and the miracle is a side thing. It isn't the other way around, and that's what the book of Acts shows us all the way through. It's a secondary thing. So we have Paul's availability, his willingness to teach all night long, and then in verse 13 it mentions that the group goes on ahead by ship, Asos there, and Paul takes a 20-mile walk to get to the port to, to connect, reconnect with them. Now, What's going on in that 20-mile walk? We don't know. Why is Paul all by himself? A couple reasons have been put forth. One is that he wanted to stay and make sure that he reconnected there with the people before he went on. Maybe he wanted to make sure that Eutychus was okay the next morning, so he stayed there a little bit longer. Maybe he just wanted time alone to be with God. We don't know. But he walks 20 miles on foot and joins them at the port of Asos there. It's very interesting. So today, as we read this passage, and as a pastor, I look at these four ways that Paul showed his love for the church, and I think this is what I need to be about. Encouragement through God's word, giving of my time and gifts, my willingness to persist and be persistent in this ministry, not give up, my availability to serve and meet the needs of this congregation, and I want to encourage you to think about this in terms of yourself too. I don't always meet those four things. I fall short sometimes. But I think these are four qualities that we can all strive for. Encouraging each other, giving to meet needs, being persistent in our care for one another, and being available to reach out to somebody. What does availability look like? I wanted to read this. I thought it was good. It says, a man applied for a job as a handyman. The prospective employer asked, can you do carpentry? The man answered in the negative. How about bricklaying? Again, the man answered, no. The employer asked, well, what about electrical work? The man said, no. I don't know anything about that either. Sounds like me, actually. Finally, the employer said, well, tell me what is handy about you. <laughs> what actually is handy about you? The man replied, I live around the corner. Sometimes the greatest ability we can have is availability. To be where God can call us, to be within whisper range of his summons, that is the beginning of a life of meaningful discipleship. 
availability is an ability for God. As we prepare for communion, and Phil is gonna come up and lead us in this, I want to go back to this idea in verse 16. It says Paul was in a hurry to reach Jerusalem. There was something in his heart that where he just had to get there. He had this great desire to get to Jerusalem to show his love for his fellow brothers and sisters there. He had this love offering of money that he had collected and he had his partners in ministry there with him to give it to these people. And he couldn't wait to get there and to see their faces and to fellowship with them. We know from the book of Acts, and we're going to see this moving forward, that once he gets to Jerusalem, he's going to be persecuted. He's going to be put in prison. He's going to be arrested. He's going to spend a good amount of time there behind bars. He didn't know that heading to Jerusalem, but he just wanted to get there. As we celebrate Palm Sunday, Jesus had that desire to get to Jerusalem. His desire was also to show his love for his people, his church. He had this love offering he wanted to give also, but his love offering was his life. His love offering was himself as the perfect sacrifice. The difference between him and Paul is he knew exactly what he was getting into when he was going to Jerusalem. As we think about that, if we think about the heart of Jesus to share his love for us, let's come before the Lord this morning in communion together.